Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we just thank you, Lord, and praise you for this day. Um, Lord, we thank you for the change of seasons, how it shows your creativity, your power, and your care for creation. Um, Lord, I pray that this morning uh, you would be speaking, Lord, um, that you would help us all to hear what your word says. Um, may we glorify you with our lives and, and everything we do. And in these things we pray in your son's precious name. Amen. So over the past couple months, uh, the Lord has been impressing upon me his own humility and my lack of humility. Um, I've had to examine myself and confront the disparity between how I think I should be treated and the truth that he tells us in Scripture. So when I was asked to preach, this topic and this passage instantly came to mind. But I found when studying humility, you must always start with a natural position of a person to accurately set the baseline. When you do that, you understand who people are before God. You see how they think they ought to be treated. And um, then you see the level of humility because you see how they act in comparison to all that. And the same thing's true with Christ. When you look at the humility of Christ, you need to start with his natural position When you see his natural position, you need to then go and see how he acted in according to that. When you see that, you see his humility. Therefore, because we need to know who Christ is before we can study his humility, who is Christ? Well, the Gospel of John tells us, in in John 1, 1 1-5, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Christ was with God, and Christ was God. That fact alone means Christ is worthy of all our adoration. And because of him, everything was made. And there's no being above him, and there's no being other than him that is at that great. We see here also that Christ is eternal in verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. There was no beginning to Christ. In that regard, Christ is unlike any other being. He just always has been and always has been with the Father. And if Christ being eternally God isn't enough for him to be deserving of all of our praise, We also see here that he created all things, and nothing was made without him. He is the giver of life and breath. Therefore, Christ is worthy of the highest praise, as Scripture confirms in the book of Revelation. Revelation 4.11 Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That is the natural position of Christ. That is where he deserves to be long before he even came to this world. He was deserving of all honor, glory, and power because everything was made through him. 
So it makes sense why the Jews believe that he would come as a glorious king, because that's who he is. He is in that position as a glorious king. But when he came, he didn't come as a proud nobleman with glint and glory and honor and power. He came in humility. Turn with me to our passage this morning, which is in the book of Isaiah. It's Isaiah 53. Follow along as we read. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When studying this passage, you see that there are four sections in it. Verses 1 through 2, 3 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. There's a wealth of theology in each section, but I want to specifically hone in on the humility that is shown that Christ had when he came to earth. Firstly, we see that Christ showed humility when he came and lived with, a, with people. Look again at verses 1 and 2. Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. When Christ came, he didn't come in power and pomp but he came as a baby. The God of the universe, the creator of all things, needed his parents for the most basic of things. He had to be taught to speak, to walk, to eat, and even dress himself. One day, Jesus is measuring the universe with a span, and then the next, he's dependent on his mom for just life. Even beyond what Isaiah is saying here, just think about the humility he had and letting himself depend so much on the humans he created. Even letting them touch him and care for him at the most basic levels. 
one of the last Faith Family Nights, we talked about, the men, that is, talked about the uncompromising holiness of God. Now, if you don't approach him right, or you touch a mountain he's sitting on, you could be struck down. Saint or sinner, it doesn't matter. But he still came and lived among us, submitting himself to the constraints of humanity. And the phrase, like a root out of dry ground, is best explained by Matthew Henry in his commentary. This is what is here meant by his being a root out of dry ground, his being born of a mean and despicable family in the north, in Galilee, of a family out of which, like a dry and desert ground, nothing green, nothing great was expected, and a country of such small repute that it was thought no good thing could come out of it. Christ was supposed to be born a king among kings. I mean, he was a promised heir to David's throne. And he was born of that kingly line. But it was at a time when that line had no esteem, no worth, and no title. And to top it off, Christ wasn't even particularly attractive or regal looking. It says he had no beauty, form, or majesty that we should desire him. He was born a human amongst humans looking like every other man that you'd meet on the street. In his face, there was no hint of the glory that he contained. But despite his ordinary looks, feelings were anything but neutral toward him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The definition of despise is to feel contempt or deep repugnance. The definition of repugnance is intense disgust. And that is what the people around him felt for him, intense disgust. The creator of the universe is here, the giver of life. And people are, dis- and sorry, and he is despised and rejected by his people and by his creation. And he doesn't retaliate or call fire down to consume them. He walked amongst these people for about 33 years, showing a forbearance and a humility that none could come close to replicating. And in the end, it was he who bore their sins and their griefs. And he bore the sins and griefs of all of his people. Christ took the full weight of our sin, the crushing that was meant for us, he bore. He knew, he knew that, what verse 6 says, he knew that everyone would be all following their own paths, following their own ways, yet he still took what God laid on him. I spend a lot of time working with kids at summer camp, and nine times out of ten, if you confront a bunch of them about something they've done, at least one will cry, it wasn't me. But isn't that what we all cry when confronted with someone else's sin and someone else's mistake? We all go, it wasn't me, it was them. I mean, a window gets broken, and everyone looks at me, and I'm like, it was me. I start pointing at that guy over there. The injustice of being held responsible for someone else's sin and and taking that punishment is too much for us to bear. 
None of us stand it, and we don't take it from someone who despises us. We might not tell anyone, but we're we're just like, no, that's not me. Like, and the guy getting on us, we're like, no, it was him. Like, I'm not going to go tell him, but it was him. There might be one or two people that are the exception that, like, yeah, we might be kind of take it for them. But only if they are nice to us, the sin isn't too bad or targeted directly against us. But thankfully, this is not true with Christ. He took our sin, and our sin was and is against him. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Psalm 51, 4. He was crushed, pierced, and wounded for the whole of his people as they actively despised and disobeyed him. As we see in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were all off, wandering in our own sin and filth, accumulating wrath, upon wrath for ourselves, Christ died for us. Christ laid down his life. Christ is all-knowing. He knew that with every day we lived on this earth without him, we're spitting defiance back in his face. Instead of striking us where we stand, he humbly took our punishment and was silent while doing so. Turn to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet he opened not his mouth. If you remember those two people that you might take a punishment for, and if you did take it, you wouldn't do it silently. I mean, the person getting on you might not find out, but you'd tell the other guy eventually. They'd hear about how you heroically took a beating meant for them, and even if only joking, you remind them year after year, inflicting the same beating on them, how you took their punishment. And by doing that, you tell the world that you think you deserve to be treated with respect and honor. And it's not fair that you, of all people, should have to stoop to take someone else's punishment. But Christ doesn't do that here. Jesus didn't say a word. He knew what he would have to go through, the pain and the agony, the shame of being hung on a cross, the full weight of the wrath of his father being poured out on him. Less than one word, one word is all it would have taken for it all to stop. All the lies, the abuse, the unbelief could have all ended. He is a just God being who was treated unjustly. And he deserved better and could have demanded it. But he didn't. That's because Christ wasn't thinking of himself. His only thought was for the will of his Father. The Father's will was that Jesus should remain silent and die to make his people righteous. 
Take a look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. From a human standpoint, that is a horrible hand to be dealt. He not only has to live among people who hate him, he has to take their punishment, and then he has to make a guilt offering himself as the offering for those same people. In spite of all we are and all we have done, it is Jesus Christ who cleans us up and makes us new. He did everything for us. He gave us life. He gave us breath. And then when we failed, he gives himself silently and unbegrudgingly to cleanse us. But it wasn't easy for Christ. Oftentimes we think that. We have this idea that it was just a walk in the park. These verses talk about the anguish of his soul and pouring out his soul to death and the Father crushing him. And we read elsewhere that in the garden before he was arrested, he's praying to the Lord that if there was some way, he could do it another way if it was possible. His sweat became like drops of blood. And when his father's answer was no, he still submitted himself in complete, complete humility. Philippians 2 says that, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ did not count his position a thing to be used to his own advantage, but regarded the Father and the Father's will above his own. Because he was doing that, he gave up all of his rights, everything he deserved, to obediently follow the Father's will. What an example for us to follow. But unfortunately, that is not our natural position. We all know this, if we're being honest with ourselves. Look back over Isaiah 53. The prophet talks about our transgressions in verses 5, 8, and 12. Our griefs, verse 4. Our going astray, each of us turning to our own way, verse 6. Our iniquity, verses 5, 6, and 11. And us despising him, verse 3. We all could recite passage after passage after passage that talk about these same principles. And we would all be very, very hard-pressed to find a passage that talks about the beauty of humanity that just so thrilled the Lord that he needed us desperately. But Scripture tells a different story about the beauty of humanity, as we see in the book of Romans. Romans three ten through 18. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. 
They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is what scripture tells us is the position of all humanity. But so often... We refuse to accept or fully believe the implications of these truths. We can't let go of the idea that we have something of worth, something of value in us. I mean, it is a wide-held Christian belief that heaven went bankrupt for us. We read the parable of the lost sheep, and we think that there's something of worth in them that necessitated a heroic um, victory and a heroic recovery. We miss the point, however, that it wasn't a characteristic of the sheep that made them valuable, but rather the actions of the seeker, how he sought them, how he found them, how he made them new. That's what gives them the value. We think heaven wouldn't be heaven without us, but in truth, God was completely okay in eternity past, and he will be completely okay in eternity future If you are not there. Your value comes from what he decides to do for you. And not anything in and of yourselves. Like the sheep. We're all going astray after our own worthless ways. With no fear of God. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing inherent in our character. No goodness or worthiness that explains our salvation. There's nothing for us to be proud of. Even as the Apostle Paul tells the Corinthians. Even if you're saved, you might represent the lowest of humanity. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This passage calls us fools and weak, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. There's nothing special in us. We in and of ourselves are all worthless and useless before God. And God chose people like that as scripture says that no human being might boast. So that's what we ought to do. We ought to be humble and not boast in ourselves. But we do. We do boast in ourselves even after our salvation. We have a pride of self-reliance which tells us that now we're free from sin, we can do it ourselves. We've established that salvation's not something you can do by yourself, but what about after you're saved? What about your ministry, your marriage, how you treat and talk to other people, the way you interact around those you work with? Is there anything in you that explains the good works you do? Is there anything in you that you can be proud of with your actions in these areas? Jesus tells us in the book of Matthew that nothing we do on our own will gain us any amount of standing with him. Matthew seven twenty eight 
22 through 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Salvation isn't a flip switch. It isn't what makes you suddenly good enough to be independent of God. We say to God, thanks for getting me started, but uh, I got it from here. But that's just wrong. Christ doesn't accomplish God's will because of us, but rather in spite of us. How prideful must we be to think that we can do anything to make the Lord accept us or praise us? We've got to humble ourselves. If we do humble ourselves and get over our pride of worth and our pride of self-reliance, we still have our pride at the righteousness of Christ and how we think it makes us look to other people. We steal the glory due to Christ, which comes from his righteous workings. We should say, look at what the Lord did that I got to be a part of, but what we actually say is look at what I did and the greatness I accomplished. We shine the spotlight that should be on Christ, on ourselves. We use his righteousness and his power to stoke our own ego. We'll casually slip into a conversation, some ministry we're doing. We'll be like, as I was walking door to door last week, sharing the gospel with my neighbors like I do every week, and we'll say something completely unrelated, like what the best walking shoes are. But the whole point was that we were walking door to door every week, sharing the gospel with our neighbors. And it's just to promote ourselves and not promote Christ. It's to get everyone around to say, aren't they such a great Christian? I always wish I was as dedicated as they are. We forget that the glory due for good works is due to Christ alone. We also forget that we're not supposed to pray to ourselves or our works before other people. Again, Matthew tells us that. Matthew 6, 1-4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. That is how it should be. All we do, we should be doing in secret. We should be doing it for the Father who sees in secret. But even in the honest working, in the secret working for the Lord, watch out. Because there's a danger in that, more dangerous than the blatant pride. It's a danger of false humility. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, talks about the dangers of false humility. The premise of the book is one demon, Screwtape, is writing to his nephew on how to better tempt the Christian that the nephew has been assigned. This is what Screwtape tells his nephew. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to the fact? All virtues are less formidable to us once the man is aware that he has them. But this is especially true of humility. Catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection 
by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride. Pride at his own humility will appear. If he wakes to the danger and tries to smother this new form of pride, make him proud of his attempt, and so on, through as many stages as you please. This is a dangerous place to be. We become proud out of our own humility. We get praised for doing anything, and we say, to God be the glory. But then we walk away and say to ourselves, aren't I such a great Christian for crediting to God the glory? I truly am some guy. Also because of our humility, we go away singing, for I'm a jolly good fellow and the whole world ought to know. But it's ridiculous. And God sees our hearts and calls us to humility. First Peter 5, 6 Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. False humility will not be tolerated by the Lord. He sees and knows every thought and intention of our hearts better than we do ourselves. We have to guard our hearts and minds from false humility and be doing internal checkups on ourselves constantly. When we find the areas of pride in our lives, we have to turn to God and repent of them. However, even in repentance, watch out for false humility. It's a vicious sin that just cycles itself. The only way to beat pride is to look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ is our example of what humility looks like. Christ is the one we ought to be emulating. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the humility that we are called to. In humility, we are to serve others as Christ did. We are to, in humility, we are to count others as more significant than ourselves. We must remember that. We must remember that we are to display that in our theology, in our teaching, how we interact around people, in every area of our day-to-day lives, we are to be as humble as Christ was humble. The only way we can come close to accomplishing this is to look to Christ and beg and plead with him to make us more like himself. Now let us pray and do so. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just... Thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for the conviction it brings. Lord, we pray that in all things you would be glorified, in all things you would be upheld in our lives, Lord. Lord, we pray that in our lives we would not seek our own gain, we would not seek our own glory, but we'd seek your glory, Lord, that we would seek your righteousness, that we would seek to shine the spotlight on you, Lord. Lord, we just thank you for coming. We thank you for showing us what humility looks like. Lord, we thank you for putting up with humanity for 33 years, Lord. 
Lord, we just thank you and praise you for all you are. Lord, we just thank you that you saved us, Lord. We thank you that you sent your spirit. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live humble, godly lives. And Lord, in all things, be glorified. These things I pray in Son's name. Amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 